I think art can really articulate something in a different way than we can articulate verbally. And we perceive it maybe not right in the moment, but then it trickles down and it's in your body and it's really powerful in that sense. That was Jeanette Ellis, and this is Nordic Portraits. Jeanette Ellers is a Copenhagen-based artist of Danish and Trinidadian descent who works primarily with photography, video, installation, sculpture, and performance. Her practice often makes use of self-representation and image manipulation in order to explore themes relating to identity, ethnicity, and history, namely Denmark's colonial impact in the Caribbean and participation in the transatlantic slave trade. Her work has been exhibited broadly both in Denmark and internationally, including most recently shows at MCA in Chicago and Le Centre Pompidou in Paris. Jeanette, welcome to Nordic Portraits. Thank you so much. Thanks for the invitation. Of course, it's a pleasure to have you here. Jeanette, I wondered if we could start by going back to 2008, where after having graduated from the Royal Danish Academy of Fine Arts, you were on a journey in Ghana, and I just wondered what it was that was awaiting you there that left such a strong impression upon you. Um, thanks for asking. <laughs> yeah, I went on a trip to Ghana. I was going to visit some friends and also do an art project, a different art project. And during my research to go there, I realized how involved Denmark was in the transatlantic slave trade. And also for a long time, they had been in Ghana. And I brought a book by a Danish writer called Tokil Hansen. It was written in the 60s and I brought it along and it was just incredible to read it while there because it had all the details and it was like he really did a lot of research and he was there and he let these um, writings and paintings or drawings at least from all of these different sites and I was just so shocked because I didn't know anything about this history. So um, it made a very deep impact on my life as well as on my working life because from that moment on I decided I need to do something. I need to work around these issues of Denmark's colonial history and also um, because it was, um, first of all, I was shocked about not knowing anything about this, not having been taught anything about this at school growing up in Denmark and also because it was very personal to me. Because of my heritage, my father is Trinidadian. It's not a former Danish colony, but it's the same kind of history, of course. My mother's Danish. So it kind of just, you know, it shocked me. And I felt a very personal relation to it. Because it's, like you said in the intro, it's about identity. It's about representation. So many things come up and suddenly you kind of understand. Maybe not like you're not able to articulate it, but there's so many things that you kind of understand at that moment. At least that was how I felt. Yeah, so it's just a really, really uh, important event in my life. One mm. of the important ones. There's been a lot, but still, this was really important. And you mentioned identity and representation. What was it then like for you to grow up in what can be perceived as a fairly monocultural <laughs> society mm. in Denmark as a woman of colour with a Trinidadian father? Mm. 
can you share a little about what your experience was like? I mean, I had a great life in Denmark, no doubt about that. Um, however, of course, being a BIPOC here in Denmark, especially I think my generation or my generation and older, there were never really any representations with black people or colored people. And the only thing that I remember from my upbringing was like people from Africa who <laughs> had a hard time. So it was always like these misery images or then there was the Cosby show in the 80s, which of course had a great impact globally. But that was one of the first things that I remember watching where I was like, whoa, even though the culture was very different, I just felt so recognized in a way. And, you know, it was like, this is also me. I could relate. And it was also a great experience to see that at that point. And we didn't know about Cosby, Bill Cosby at that point, of course. So, yeah. but it was just like, that was one of the first experiences where I remember to feel a little bit empowered, even though I couldn't articulate it. But, you know, seeing somebody who looked like you, you know, all of these things that I talk about now, they kind of surfaced when I went to Ghana and the things that I started to explore from that experience in Ghana. And it was kind of hidden or layered inside my body or whatever consciousness. And then when I went to Ghana, it kind of opened up this source that just kept bringing up stuff that had been hidden for a lifetime almost or half a lifetime or whatever. So, you know, then you start realizing that there was a lot of racist imagery when you grew up and you kind of had a feeling that you didn't like what you saw, but you kind of just also had to ignore it or laugh about it because people here didn't really understand the seriousness. And if they said the N-word, you know, you would kind of just have to accept it because there wasn't really any culture around taking these issues seriously and take a stand towards these things, at least not where I grew up. So there was a lot of suppressed emotions, I would say, because there was no culture. I mean, I guess in the States, of course, in the States and also many other places like maybe France or maybe not even France, but maybe in the UK, there would be a culture or a tradition to speak about these things. You know, they would be much further ahead because of the culture and because of the different backgrounds. So these things would be issues that you could discuss, but that was not really anything that was brought up in Denmark until quite recent, actually. So that's also why there's so many things being debated right now that are on a very different level than in the US, for instance, or other places that are ahead in their discourse. Mm. And what of the Trinidadian influence was there in your family life? Did your father speak much about his home country and his roots? Um to be honest, I um, my parents, they divorced when I was quite young. So I grew up with my mother and I didn't have contact with my dad for uh, many years. And then when I became a teenager, I started meeting with him again. And then I also went to Trinidad and Tobago and met my family. And that was a really, really, that was also one of the big events in my life, of course. That was before Ghana, but that was when I realized how linked, of course, I am to Trinidad. That's half of me. And a lot of things fell into place in my personal life, I would say, or my self-understanding. And things that were not able to be nurtured here could be nurtured there. Yeah, it was just a very big experience to me. And of course, my dad, he lived in Europe for many, many years. And he always loved to talk about Trinidad. 
He used to sing, he was a crooner, but he also loved to sing calypsos. Uh, so that was one of his favorite things. And that was, of course, very influential to me. And I loved that. Yeah. So I think that was the most important thing that he brought and also his attitude, he was a jokester, you know, that's very Trinidadian, that you make jokes about everything, you know, so that was his personality. And what role did art play in your family life growing up? Um, not much, I would say. Not visual arts. However, from a very young age, I was a gymnast in a company that traveled a lot all over the place. We did a lot of shows and stuff like that. So it was like on a high level. So that was when I started expressing myself in a way. And later on, I started dancing and doing ballet and these types of things. And, you know, and also touched a little bit upon music, (laughs) just a little bit. So music and this type of culture and art has always had a very big influence in my life. But it wasn't until also my late teens that I started painting and being interested in this type of expression. And then I kind of moved on. I thought maybe I should try to uh, go that way. I took some courses and it took a while for me to get into the academy. But in the end, I was accepted and I started there. And it was a, <laughs> it was a long journey, but it was the way it should be, I guess. And so you were armed with this education and have started to hone your practice, and you have this epiphany in Ghana about the subject matter you want to explore. I'm fascinated what it was like for you when you come back to Copenhagen. How does one go about starting from that point where you have this burning ambition, Mm -hmm. but no clear blueprint or roadmap? Mm. Yeah, I mean... um My experience in Ghana was just so overwhelming that I just knew I had to continue digging into it and keep rolling. You know, I actually forgot to say that when I was in the academy, I started out painting, but then I quickly realized that was not for me. So I started working with video and photo and stuff like that. And for many years, I experimented with painting within video. So I actually made a lot of videos where I erased different stuff in the image or in the footage. So the first video I made with that methodology was a video with a soccer game. I erased all the soccer players and then there was only the ball and the shadows. So that was one of my first experiments. And it was kind of dealing with identification and what does it mean if the most important thing, apart from the ball, of course, if it has been erased, what does it mean? And I did a lot of these experiments with different footage or different situations. And um, then when I came to Ghana, I realized what I had been doing in the academy was actually kind of like a sketch for what I had to do now. Because in the academy, I didn't really have a lot of content to it. But when I came to Ghana, the whole hidden history and all of that, it just made so much sense to use that methodology to talk about these issues of erasure and presence and absence and all of these things that I had been working on. So kind of in a way, it came together in my mind with this whole new approach to it. So it made so much sense right there. And it wasn't long thereafter that you performed Black Magic at the White House in 2009 at Marienborg. It's a very confronting work loaded with symbolism. Yeah. 
Can you share a little about your thinking behind that and how it was received at the time? Well, I'm glad you did so much (laughs) research. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, so you asked me also before, how did I continue to work with these issues? And one of the things is that I actually went to, from Ghana, I decided, let me just go in the footsteps of this whole transatlantic slave trade from the Danish perspective. So I went to the Virgin Islands where I did a few projects as well. The U.S. Virgin Islands now, but back then it was the Danish Virgin Islands, the St. Croix, St. Thomas and St. John. So I did some projects there. And then I also decided, let me figure out in Denmark, where is the traces of our colonial history? And when you start looking for it, they're everywhere, at least in the architecture. You could see it like visually, but of course it's also in the structures and you realize that the deeper you dig, you know, So I realized that the mansion Marienborg, which is today the prime minister's official residence, was built as a mansion summer residence for this captain who was involved in the trade somehow. I don't know if it was a slave ship or whatever, but everyone was kind of involved in the industry at that point. Anyway, he made a lot of money from his job and that made him built this summer residence. So today's prime minister's residence is deeply involved in the trade as well. And I realized maybe I should use this location to talk about this invisibility and about Denmark's colonial past and all of that. So I decided, let me make a video in which I'm dancing in these spaces. I erased myself, but you can still see me because I manipulated in the same way that I did with my videos that I experimented with in the art school. I used that same methodology. So you can actually see me and not see me. So that was a simple way to speak about the ghost that is still there. And um, I made a dance that was inspired by African dance, but also Haitian voodoo, which of course also stems from Africa. So it was called Black Magic at the White House. And the White House is because the house is white, but it also referred to the White House of the States, which is built from enslaved people as well. And at that moment, that was in 2008-9, And at that point, Obama had been elected as the president of the United States for the first time. So I thought it was a kind of play on words to use that White House and then the black magic. And it spoke to so many things. Hmm. Another work of yours that further cast a spotlight on this chapter of Denmark's history was I Am Queen Mary. Yeah. As I understand it, you embarked on this to coincide with the 100-year anniversary of Denmark having sold and transferred the Virgin Islands to the United States following 200 years of ruling its people under slavery, something that not many Danes would necessarily know much about. Mm -hmm. You partnered up with Caribbean-based artist Lavorne Bell and together embarked on creating this large-scale public statue, one that garnered a lot of international attention. I'm just curious about how you first landed on that idea and what that creative process was like for you. Yeah, it started actually all the way back in 2014. I had a solo show in a place called Nikolai Contemporary Art Center. And because of that, I was approached by a researcher called Helestenum, who is a researcher within migrant studies and stuff like that. And she was very keen on making something for the centennial in 2017. She wanted to produce an exhibition in Denmark and in the Virgin Islands 
in which she wanted artists from each location to create works on each side of the ocean, but also works that could travel and transfer. And she particularly asked me and also Lavon Bell to think about a monument we could do each of us on each side of the ocean. So she wanted to do the exhibition in the two warehouses on each side of the Atlantic. So the West Indian warehouse in Copenhagen, which is now the Royal Cast Collection, and the warehouse in St. Croix in Christiansted. Because these two buildings were, of course, very linked back in the day. And after the sale of the Virgin Islands, they were separated. So it was a very symbolic act of our history that they were separated and everything was just kind of put away. And then she wanted to reconnect our histories and our nations. So that was the background. And then I went on thinking, how can I produce my piece in front of the warehouse in Copenhagen? And I had already worked inside of the building, the Royal Cast Collection, because it houses more than 2,000 sculptures, copies of sculptures from the ancient Greek era to the Renaissance. So it kind of speaks to the Western art history canon and only that. However, the building, of course, was built <laughs> on the backs of black people and enslaved people. So all these histories collide in there. But it was only one history that was brought forth. So I had made a project inside of the building called Whip It Good, which is a performance that I normally do with an audience. But I made a video version of it inside of the building where I'm whipping a white canvas with a whip that is dipped in crushed charcoal. And then I just lash the canvas so it gets these stripes, like marks from the whip. And while I did the video version of that inside of the building, I also made a photo of myself I'm a character. I'm a resistance character. So it's not really me. I'm sitting in this peacock chair with the whip in my hands. And it's actually a reference to a very iconic image of Huey P. Newton, who is one of the founders of the Black Panther Party, where he's sitting in a peacock chair with a rifle and a spear in his hands. So it's kind of a reference to that, kind of doing it in a feminist way or whatever. And that was an image that I made for that exhibition also in Nikolai Contemporary Art Center. So I thought maybe I should use this as a starting point. And also outside of the building, there was a huge, or there is a huge sculpture, a replica of Michelangelo's David. Uh, so it's only standing outside on one side of the building. So I thought, you know, it needs a counterpart <laughs> because it represents, again, this white supremacy and the white gaze and everything. So If I could make a counter sculpture to that and a counterpoint to that, that would be a great idea. So that is why I decided, let me use that image that I made inside of the building. Let me take that outside and let's create this huge sculpture of a black female resistance character to counterpoint Michelangelo's David and also the building. And then at some point, Helestino, she had to give up the project. She had to cancel it because she couldn't find money for it. And I was just deeply involved in this project. Like, I can't stop now. I think this has to be done. And Lavon Bell was also working on her project in the Virgin Islands, where she was working on creating a kind of plinth based on coral stones, like 200 years old coral stones that were cut out of the ocean by enslaved Africans in the Virgin Islands, of course. And they were used as building material to the colonial houses. So they were like the foundation of the buildings. And then there was the Danish bricks on top. The Danish bricks were shipped from Denmark to um, the Virgin Islands and then 
used as, of course, to build these houses. And that was the only thing you could see. So you could only see the Danish bricks and then the coral stones were in the bottom. You couldn't see them. But now, since a lot of these buildings are falling apart, you can start seeing these coral stones. So she had some property and she used these parts to create pieces. And that was her idea to make this plinth structure. So at some point we decided, let's merge our project. I actually, I, I was also able to raise some money to make a temporary version of the sculpture. So I also reached out to Lavon and asked if we could do something together. And we decided to merge our projects because, as I just mentioned, Lavon's idea was so great in terms of being a plinth. And then I had the figure on top. So, you know, it was a match made in heaven in a way. <laughs> and then we also decided to not only merge our projects, but actually also merge our bodies since this project is about bridging and merging and hybrids and stuff like that. So the figure is actually a hybrid of our bodies. So how was that achieved? We were body scanned. Yeah, it's like a very high-tech technique. Then there was a designer who created a hybrid of our bodies. So it's actually like a complete new woman that haven't been in the world before. And she carries the history in her, but she also has the future in her and the present, of course, because it's our bodies. And since we are both working with performance and, you know, we use ourselves a lot in our projects, it made sense for us to do so. That's why it's called I Am Queen Mary, a hybrid of bodies, nations and narratives. Mm. And we don't only speak about our own bodies. We also speak about everyone else's bodies because we're all kind of archives, you know. So that was kind of how this came about. And then, first of all, we couldn't raise enough money to make a bronze version. Of course, that's our goal to do that. But we decided we want to make a mock-up because we need this manifestation here. Because a lot of people, they didn't understand what it meant we also got a lot of rejections, of course, but we just wanted it to be there, to be present so that people could understand what does it mean to have this black female body in public space, mostly because of what we're dealing with and to speak to these colonial structures and all that, but also because 98% of the statues that are in public space in Copenhagen represent white males, 98%. So to have this huge, huge black female body in the space was really something else. And I also feel that after we did this, people started to reflect. We got a lot of people reaching out and, you know, not only in Denmark, but actually globally, we had a lot of attention. So it means something. Representation means something. We knew that, but it was also good to see it materialized. And this is five years ago, and we're still working on getting the permanent permission. Well, no, we actually have a permanent permission, but to get it there permanently, to find money for it, it's a different process than normally. Normally, all the public artworks, they are commissioned by institutions and, you know, everything is taken care of, the money, the permissions, the everything. But this is a completely artist-driven project that comes from the bottom and up. So we're still trying to navigate this bureaucracy and it's very difficult. And yeah, we have a lot of support in many ways, but we also face a lot of challenges because nobody really wants to take the ownership of it and say, hey, we need to do this. It really takes a lot of know-how and we're just, we're learning and we're still fighting and trying to realize this. How is it for you personally to constantly come up against this resistance? Is it difficult for you to maintain a positive state of mind and do you often feel lonely in it? Um, 
it's ups and downs, I would say, because I'm driven by the fact that this project is much bigger than myself. And I have to constantly remind myself that this is not about me. This is about something much bigger. And that keeps me going. But of course, yeah, it's it's really tough. And sometimes I feel, you know, maybe we won't make it, but I have this confidence still. But in terms of having fought so hard just to get the temporary sculpture in place, it's huge in scale, seven meters? Yeah, yeah. How was it for you at the unveiling to see this towering figure in such a prominent space in the capital of Denmark, knowing all of the painstaking work you'd put in to get it there and that sense that you're about to fire a shot into the broader conversation around Denmark's history. What was it like for you? Oh my God. I I don't think I can describe it actually, because it was really something. I mean, to to think about this started as some kind of idea that we both got on each side of the ocean. I want to make this and I want to make this. And then to finally be there, I mean, it was as if it was the final stage like it's there. We have just been talking about it for such a long time, but now it's actually manifested. That was so big. And also because there's so many things that weren't articulated. You have an idea of how something looks like or what it means, but then to actually see it manifesting and also see it getting there and have an impact on people, both negative and positive. And I think that's a big force of public art because it's just there and people are confronted with it all the time. Everyone has an opinion and you need to be ready to <laughs> to take that. You know, a lot of people don't like it. I also forgot to say that we have a smaller version in New York, like a <laughs> Statue of Liberty that has a smaller version yeah. in Paris. But we have a smaller version in New York and that was commissioned by the Ford Foundation. They wanted to include it in an exhibition that they did in 2018 or 19, I don't remember. And then... After the exhibition, it was put on a long time loan in Barnard College. And right now it's in one of the spaces where Malcolm X did one of his last speeches. Wow. So it's really like, it's so powerful. Hmm. I failed to ask earlier, but is Queen Mary an actual historical figure? Yeah, she is. Thank you for asking because <laughs> I didn't even say anything about that. Queen Mary, she was one of the leaders of the... 1878 labor revolt in St. Croix, which was then Danish. And it was one of the biggest Danish labor revolts in history. And she, together with three other queens, as they were called, they were leaders. They weren't enslaved. It was 30 years after abolition of slavery. So they were workers, but they were still under slave-like conditions. And they revolted against these horrible conditions. And they led this revolt where they were burning down some plantations in St. Croix. And they weren't able to keep the power. So they were imprisoned and they were first sentenced to death. But then the colonizers changed the sentences. So they were actually imprisoned in Denmark. And they were here for like five years or so in the women's prison. So that's also history that a lot of Danes did not know anything about. I didn't know anything about it before I started digging into our colonial history. And in Denmark, she was an unknown figure, but in St. Croix, she's a hero or heroine because of her fierce character. And, you know, not only her, but also the other queens. 
And that's just also very interesting to see how differently the history carries out and <laughs> what is remembered and what is not. I mean, here in Denmark, we have all the written papers in the archives and the archives in the Virgin Islands. They don't have anything left because Denmark took everything. So they have the oral archives. And, you know, all these things that plays out now since we started talking about these issues in a Danish context, all sorts of new complications arise. How is history told and whose history is important and all of these things. Hmm. And as you confront these issues of cultural amnesia, what response are you met with? Here in Denmark, I find that, I mean, I think a lot has happened since 2017. A lot of people have realized that we were a colonizing nation for many years. Maybe people don't really understand the impact still, but at least there's a lot more consciousness about it than before, where there was complete uh, amnesia, what we call the Scandinavian colonial amnesia. And it's still there, for sure. But I also find that the younger generation, they really take this on in so many ways, and they're not afraid of dealing with it. So I'm just sometimes very hopeful for <laughs> these topics and for these structures to transform. I mean, it would take a long time, I'm sure. But I just feel that looking at the youth, they are dealing with confronting these issues. Is it being taught in schools here in Denmark? Um, I have a feeling that it's been taught in many schools, that maybe it's mandatory to kind of touch upon these issues. Both my kids, they are like teenagers now, but they have both been taught about it a little bit. I think it really depends on the teacher. So that is the next step, you know, if you want to teach about it, that's great. But how do you teach about it and what is being put into discussion and what perspective and all of that? So it's a long process, but we can definitely not not teach these things right now. And I think it could be much deeper in the understanding of what it means for our society today, because a lot of people tend to feel that this is history. It has nothing to do with us today. And I mean, that's not the case. It has everything to do with today. Do you think this uh, blind spot in terms of how Denmark understands its own history is holding its people back? Um, yeah, for sure. I think if people understood or were enlightened, <laughs> hopefully they would react in other ways or reflect upon things. I mean, when you first start reflecting and when you first start getting conscious you know you can't really say you don't know then it's a matter of policies and it's a matter of decisions and at the end of the day it's a matter of power gaining or losing power or losing a little bit of power it's power structures so the more conscious you get the more you kind of realize that you have to give away power and mm. that's not very easy for anyone i guess mm. Is there any example you'd point to in terms of another European nation that has perhaps done a good or even acceptable job in coming to terms with its colonial past? Hmm. I can't really think of any. I think, I'm not too sure, but I think the Netherlands, I mean, they're still far from any good results or anything, but I think they're starting to reflect a little bit more and do more initiatives towards some kind of reparation. And it seems like they're a little ahead of how we're dealing with it here, but they also still have 
colonial relations to their Caribbean islands. And they have a lot of people from Suriname and Curaçao in the Netherlands. So they are kind of confronted with it in a different way than we are here in Denmark. Because when the Danes left, we took everything and we just kind of left everything in the Virgin Islands. And nobody really came here after the same way as in the UK and France and, you know, these nations where they had colonial territories. Yeah. You mentioned in passing Whip It Good, mm -hmm. a piece that you've performed many times, both here in Denmark and abroad. I'm interested in how comfortable you are in using your own body in performance. Is that something that's possibly come more easily for you, considering that you've had this athletic background as a child? Um, yeah, as you mentioned, I have this background where I actually used to perform a lot. So in that sense, I'm comfortable. I've been on a stage since I was six, <laughs> of course, in different situations, but I'm kind of comfortable with performing. I know what it takes to use my body and myself. And it took a long time for me to actually use that side of me within the arts because somehow I didn't see how to connect it. But then when I did, it was like, yeah, I feel at home in a way because I know what this is. Yeah. It depends really on the project, I would say. But in terms of Whip It Good, I kind of go into this state where, I mean, I'm still me, but I'm also in a different state of mind. And it's also a very violent, very powerful and confrontative performance. So it takes something else, I would say. Yeah, sometimes when I do it, a lot of people ask me, so how do you feel? What do you feel when you do it? And it really depends on the audience, I would say. Um, when I did it in exhibition in London in 2015, I think it was, I did it for a week every day. And for that performance or that experience, there was a lot going on in the Mediterranean with a lot of immigrants drowning. And of course, it's still going on, but there was a lot in the news about it which is linked to this whole topic that we talk about. So seeing that, it just filled me up with rage. So I used that as a driving force. But also there was a lot of police shootings and police brutality in the States towards Black people. All of these things, I used that as a fuel because it's so linked to everything that I'm doing. And then sometimes I just go into this zone and then again, it depends on the audience. So if I feel a lot of response from the audience, because I actually invite the audience to participate. So I hand out the whip so people can actually go and whip the canvas. And sometimes people are very keen, sometimes holding back. But still, I can feel that something is in the air. So it's very different from location to location. It's been a while since I did the performance because I feel I've done it a lot. And I'm, I'm not really there anymore. I might get there again at some point, but right now I'm in a different state of mind. But when I did it in South Africa, in Cape Town, in a white-owned gallery, there was a lot of black and white audience. And when I handed out the whip, none of the white audience took the whip. And that was the first time and the only time I experienced that. So only the black people took the whip. And then after the performance was done, the white owner and some of her friends came to me and they were like, oh my God, this was so... And they started crying and they wanted to hug me and they were like really, really emotional, but they just couldn't take the whip. And it just showed me how present history is in South Africa. It's not history, it's the present. And in Denmark, when I did it the first time, and of course, as you mentioned in the beginning, it's a very monocultural country and city. And it was mainly 
white people who took the whip because there were not a lot of black people in the audience, of course. And people also wanted to support me. There were a few black people or colored people, but mainly white people. And I understand that people wanted to support me and that I really appreciate that. But it also really says something about history and how conscious you are. And actually, the first time I did it in Berlin, there was this couple where the woman, she's a black artist and her husband is white. And she came to the canvas and she just couldn't. I don't know if she started crying, but, you know, she was like completely emotional. She couldn't do it. And then her husband, her white husband, he came to her rescue somehow. And he just wanted in solidarity with her to beat that canvas. And he started beating it so brutally. And I understand his motivation, but it was also like, wow, <laughs> it was so, I mean, scary to see because of history. So it's just so mixed up with all sorts of feelings and connotations and interpretations. So a very simple way of raising all sorts of questions. Does that excite you that what you just described is something that only art can possibly achieve? Yeah, for sure. Because, I mean, that's why I use that tool. Because I think art can really articulate something in a different way than we can articulate verbally. We can articulate so many things to the body that we perceive in different ways and we perceive it maybe not right in the moment, but then it trickles down and it's in your body and maybe you don't understand it the same day, maybe you don't understand it the same year. But I think art is really powerful in that sense. Hmm. I'm really interested in when you were starting out your journey as an artist all the way through to today. Have you had mentors in your life or role models who you can look to for guidance? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I've never really had like a role model in that sense within the arts. To be honest, mostly I'm driven or inspired by other things, music and events or whatever. And then, of course, I also look to other artists but I think when I started working around these issues, I was kind of inspired by my, <laughs> by my own technique or my own methodology that was really on spot for what I wanted to say at that point. And then, of course, I started looking into other artists that deal with these issues. But I'm also very inspired by the network that I have built up, conversations that we have and also some of the other artists. We can speak back and forth about what works and what doesn't work. And yeah. I like to express myself in a kind of simple way. I mean, the expression could be very simple, but what it raises should be very complex. And is that largely due to the fact that you want your work to be something that's accessible? Yeah, and I think it's the way that I think, because when I was younger, I tried to do more stuff that is chaotic. I'm, I'm just not good at that. There are people who are much better <laughs> at doing this than I am. And I think it's just the way that I am. I kind of like to boil it down. And then, you know, if you boil it down, you also need to find the right elements, of course. So it can be a long process. Sometimes it's just there. And sometimes it takes a long time to get the exact elements in the work in order for you to express what you want to express. One of the inspirations for your recent show at Charlottenburg in Copenhagen was Kendrick Lamar's To Pimp a Butterfly. Mm -hmm. What's so remarkable about that album in your eyes? Oh, wow. It's just an incredible album. Um, yeah, I listened to it when it came out there in uh, 15, I think it was. And at that point, I was actually just learning about Hans Christian Andersen's play, Mulatten, the Mulatto, 
And everybody knows about Hans Christian Andersen's fairy tales, and that's what he's most famous for. But in fact, he made a play in 1840, when Denmark was still a colonizer in the Virgin Islands, and slavery was still going on. He made a play about colonial issues. So it didn't play out in the Danish Virgin Islands. It played out in Martinique, <laughs> which is very interesting. So wow. he kind of kept it out and put it somewhere else. So it's a play in which a lot of things happen, but it's going on in a plantation. And this main character, whose name is Horatio, I think he's a mixed race. He's still enslaved, but he has like privileges. His master takes him to Paris and he learns how to read and write. So he has some privileges and he's also in love with a Danish white woman. Then there's another character. He's not a main character, but his name is Peleme. He's a maroon, a runaway slave. And then there's all these white characters. But I focus on a conversation between the two black characters in the play. And they are in a dialogue where Peleme tries to convince Horatio to rebel, to revolt, to burn down everything, just like the Fireburn Queens did in 1878. This is 1840. And they have a conversation about these things. And since Peleme is the runaway slave, he's like, of course, very keen. He wants everything to be burnt down. And Horatio is more hesitant. He kind of understands the motivation, but because he has so much at stake, because he has so many privileges, he doesn't really want to go and do it. So I was looking into that and I want to use this. So I took that dialogue and then I had these letters cut out and then I put them on the walls as if they were growing out of the walls. So it's like, again, to say that this is something that is in our culture. Even Hans Christian Andersen, our big pride, has dealt with these issues. And we still feel that we can use his fairy tales for something. But he also did this, so we should definitely also be able to use this to still talk about these issues. And then I was in a residency in Vermont and I was listening to Kendrick Lamar. And then I realized that at the very end of the album, if you listen to it and you just keep it running, there's a constructed or manipulated conversation between Kendrick and Tupac. Hmm. And it was just so powerful because I was working with Hans Christian Andersen. I was working with that dialogue. And then there was this dialogue with Tupac and Kendrick that was even manipulated. And it was like, wow, I have to do something. I have to kind of confront these two or put these two things together because they're talking about the same things, but just in different ways and with 150 years in between. And also the thing that Kendrick actually created his own questions to Tupac. Tupac was interviewed by a Swedish radio station. So that's where his answers come from. So it was like, again, this manipulation. And it reminded me of my own technique or my own way of working sometimes. Like I'm erasing something or I add something to a certain scene or something like that. So it was just down my alley, I would say. <laughs> yeah. Just as we draw to a close, Jeanette, obviously your work has dealt a lot with educating and at times provoking the viewer into a greater understanding of injustice. Mm -hmm. But I note that more recently you've been focusing on themes of healing and reconciliation. So I'm interested, what does healing look like for you? And what would your hope be for healing in a modern Danish society? That's a very good question. I don't think I can answer that. I think you're right that I, um, right now I'm in, or the exhibition in Charlottenburg was more towards healing and spirituality. And I think to understand where I am right now is actually to 
it's so much part of my own process. So when I started out, I was dealing with the erasure because I was so shocked about the erasure. And then I started after a few years of talking about erasure and suppression and all that, I figured, you know, this is not the only thing. There's been resistance since day one of colonial times, since Columbus came to the new world. So there's been resistance all along. And I could identify with that for sure. And then I dealt with that for a long time. And now I'm in this state of mind where I'm still within resistance, I would say, but within the realm of healing and spirituality, because that's also resistance. The fact that you want to, first of all, to talk about spirituality in a Danish context or in a Western context is for some provoking because, I mean, we're so detached from all these things. So to talk about that and to highlight that from other cultures that are linked to these narratives, like the African or the Indian or indigenous in Greenland. I mean, we we haven't even talked about that. That Denmark is also a colonizer of Greenland and what it means for that narrative to come forth. But all these cultures that have been suppressed, where their culture and their spirituality have been taken away to kind of bring this forth. Because I feel that. I mean, I feel these spiritualities. I feel them in my blood and I am linked to them. So it was a big thing for me to actually bring this forth. And then again about the healing. I mean, it's kind of embedded in that to dare to bring this forth. But also when we talk about healing, some people have asked me, so who is the healing for? And I think it's for our culture. It's not that I'm trying to find peace in, you know, like now everything is okay. Definitely not. We're still a long way. We still have a long way to go. And I'm still, you know, full of rage in terms of all these things that happen and the racist structures that we definitely still have. But it's just the state of mind where I am right now. I'm trying to kind of, we talk about self-care. We talk a lot about care for each other and the world is kind of going in a downward spiral right now. So we need something else. So this is kind of a healing for a lot of people who are suppressed right now, but it's also a healing for our sick, racist culture. I think a way to come to terms with all of these structures, I, I don't know if we will even get there, but it's about consciousness. It's about empathy and then reflection and restructuring because the system that we live under right now is just a system. It could easily look differently. And we know that from other cultures, it can definitely look different. Having these hierarchies and the way we do it, it could easily look different. So it's a way to reflect on our structures. Are they the right way they should be? And we can see that somehow the planet is reacting against all these structures as well. So I also see the whole climate change, climate crisis as part of this colonial project. I mean, everything is linked because of this that has destroyed so many things. So um, I think a way of healing is to understand how everything is connected and that we need new ways of thinking and new ways of structuring our lives. Hmm. Well, your art certainly goes a long way to inspiring that reflection and hope for a positive restructuring of the power systems. So I just want to thank you for sharing your thoughts and your life story so candidly with us today. Thank you so much. For letting me. Of course, it was a pleasure. Likewise, thanks. Nordic Portraits is a series by me, Ben Catford. 
The music was composed by Nina Liu and the visual identity by Copenhagen-based studio Frame. To learn more about today's guest and all the others from this season, visit nordicportraits.net. You can also follow us on Instagram and remember to rate and subscribe on iTunes so we can get the word out. Thanks for listening.